Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Catastrophic global events like World War II set in motion changes that play out for decades. COVID is a disruptor on that scale, says Felix Salmon, economics writer for Axios. He focuses on the economic disruptions caused by COVID and says that even as we're living in a period of great uncertainty, there are already positive signs of new businesses and technologies, new ways of working, and more. The title of his new book symbolizes his optimism for the future, The Phoenix Economy. He's our guest this week. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Felix Simon, we're about to talk about your new book, The Phoenix Economy, but let's start by having you tell people what your day job is. I am the chief financial correspondent at Axios, and I host the Slate Money podcast. What interests and excites you about financial reporting? Well, the thing that really, I mean, so if you go back to 2008 and the big financial crisis, that was this wake up call where everyone realized that finance touches all of us. And it is deeply embedded in the systems and the relationships that we have. And it's not just, you know, banking and central banks and economics and stuff. It's it's the money in our bank accounts and how that's a real thing, but also a completely made up thing at the same time. And if you can demystify it and if you can explain it, then that really helps people feel that they understand the world a lot better than they did if it's just this thing that they try not to think about. What is the thesis that that's drives your new book, The Phoenix Economy? The big thesis is that we are entering this thing called the new not normal, that the amount of volatility in the world is going to increase massively. There's a lot more downside. There's a lot more upside. We have to expect the unexpected. And that the um, sort of 70 years of relative peace and predictability that we had from, call it, 1945 to 2015 are now very much over. And that what you can't do is what I think of as the Warren Buffett trade, which is just make a big bet on America getting better and become the richest man in the world. That things are going to be much less predictable than that. And we're going to have to be a lot sort of more epistemically nimble. I was interested in you describing one of the indicators of how significant COVID was, was something called the P1 measurement. Can you explain that? So... This was something that was talked about quite a lot in the Barack Obama White House. Like at any given point in time, there's something called P1, which is like the the thing that everyone cares about, the most important thing in the world. Um, Jeff Zucker, when he was at CNN, when he was running CNN, really understood this, that there's one topic of conversation that everyone wants to be hearing about, talking about, and everything else is and also ran. And for most of the Trump years, that P1 was Trump. And you know, every so often there's a big natural disaster or an election or, or something that takes over. But for two years, from March 2022 through February, sorry, from March 2020 through February 2022, P1 was COVID. It was the thing that dominated the conversation. It was the only thing we thought about. It was the thing that controlled how we lived our lives 
And for that reason, COVID became this incredibly important force um, socially, economically, it changed how we live, it changed where we live, it changed how we think, it changed what we believe in. Um, it changed our whole attitudes to our own lives and created this resurgence of YOLO, you only live once kind of attitude that, that I write about in the book. And so in that sense, while the book is, is, a, is basically about how the world has changed over the past three years, um, really, it's not about COVID itself. It's not about the virus. It's not about the plague. It's about the way that it's about the societal force of the, of, of the pandemic. And one of the reasons why the COVID pandemic was so much more important in terms of like determining the, the future trajectory of the global economy than say the 1918 pandemic was because the 1918 pandemic was never in that P1 position um, while the COVID pandemic, you know, really, really, really was. And you make the point that the really distinguishing factor, even from the 2008 financial crisis and certainly 9-11 was the wide availability of the internet, internet and increasing bandwidth for so many people. Right. I mean, it was almost, it felt almost fortuitous in a way that we had almost unlimited bandwidth. And when I say we, I mean the rich three quarters of America and, 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 you know, the rich world. But for people who did have almost unlimited bandwidth, that was a game changer in a way that people didn't really anticipate as recently as yeah, as you say as the financial crisis but certainly as recently as 9 11 when you know the twin towers came down and the financial district of manhattan was a no-go zone for a few days they had to close the stock market banks had to close down there was a bank holiday you know we we had we had to just close the entire financial system we couldn't bang without people going into the physical bank and if you had asked anyone you know, before, you know, in, in 2019, in who worked in banks, who worked in information security, who understood the um, confidentiality and the security around um, the information the banks deal with, you know, could you do all of this by working on your laptop from home? They would be like, no, you, you really do need people coming into the office. It's, it's a mission critical thing that we're doing in person. And then the pandemic hit and everyone stayed at home and it wasn't just american banks banks around the world stayed open and operated basically without a hitch and it was one of those incredible things that people didn't notice because it wasn't a thing that happened it was a thing that didn't happen um and then just read that across across every other industry that you can think of pretty much or every other most nearly every other white collar industry anyway in the services sector and the world's ability to rebuild itself um, along sort of internet backbones rather than along physical, you know, physical proximity was absolutely astonishing. And I don't think we, I know we didn't have the ability to do that in 2001. Um, and honestly, I don't think we even had the ability to do that in 2008 either. This is new. Your title suggests, <clears throat> excuse me, the Phoenix, as that it, there's going to be an ultimately a positive outcome. How are you thinking about it? Yeah, this is an optimistic book. And 
The way I'm thinking about it is that we had an incredibly optimistic, let me rephrase that, we had an incredibly optimized economy in 2019. We were at what I think of as a local maximum. Everything was incredibly efficient. We had these extraordinarily efficient global supply chains um, where everything was just in time and goods and parts would arrive from all over the planet just when they were needed. And we'd, we'd reached kind of the peak efficiency of the history of the planet. And the thing about efficient systems is they are brittle and they break quite easily. And that's exactly what happened in March 2020, that we stopped those supply chains, we broke them, everything kind of the big spinning wheel just halted and a whole bunch of um, economies broke. We had declining GDP um, to a level that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. We had massive unemployment. We had a serious crisis around the world. And a whole bunch of those efficiencies just broke. And what we did was we didn't just try to rebuild them as they were before. We rebuilt something very new, something very different, something, as I say, based more around the internet, based more around personal mental health, based more around personal happiness, based more around the idea that, you know, we only have one precious life to live in this world and we should live it the best we can. Um, one uh, pays much more attention to mental health, one that pays much more attention to local communities and to building um, supply chains even that are based among your your friends and your community. And this new world that we're been building has much more growth potential than the old one did because we haven't reached that peak of efficiency. It's not very efficient. And so by for that reason, it has much more upside than the old world did. It has more downside too. And I go into that in the book, but that's one of the reasons why I'm optimistic in this age of um, increased volatility, that if you have a highly volatile system, the worst that can happen is you lose everything. The worst that, that can happen is you go down 100%. The best you can happen that can happen is you go up 10,000%. You know, we're, we're seeing hints of this right now in you know the, the hype around ai or the insane growth of threads you know which had 100 million users in five days um the upside we are seeing these days is absolutely enormous and even if the downside is 100 percent, the upside can be you know so much bigger than that that overall i'm i'm optimistic about the especially the U.S. economy, but also the, the whole world. As a writer, though, how difficult was it to capture what is clearly a, an evolving and dynamic situation? So I tried not to make predictions. What I tried to do in this book was to provide a few lenses through which we could look at things that arrive and surprise us and say, oh, you know, this is actually related to the pandemic in some way. And now I can understand what happened. Um, there are three big sections in the book. The first is called mind and so the first is called time and space. The second is called mind and body. And the third is called business and pleasure. And these are just ways to think about the world more than they are descriptions of the world. And the idea is not that I would explain everything that's going to happen to you, because in this unpredictable world, I have no idea what's going to happen to you. But I think what I've done, and I, you know, in the year or so between finishing writing the book and now, 
um, is certainly held true is that a whole bunch of unexpected, unpredictable things have happened in that time. You know, we had a banking crisis with Silicon Valley Bank and a couple of others. And all of those things that happened and everyone kind of went, wow, that was unexpected, fit really neatly into the sort of framework that I've explained in this book. So I, I feel like it's it's holding up. Before we dig into some of the phoenixes in those areas that you described, a, a couple of things that are much in the news right now. What is your perspective on inflation? So inflation was 100% a pandemic phenomenon. Um, and it one of the things that the new world does when we rebuild a new world um, and jettison the old one is that we build a whole new set of revealed preferences in terms of what we want to spend money on. And I have a chapter called Consider the Lobster Roll, which talks about this in some detail and through the lens of a lobster roll, weirdly enough, which is something that people decide, realize that they wanted more post-pandemic than they did pre-pandemic that we it's one of those experiences it's a very pleasurable experience and we're going out and we're trying to embrace and consume more in the way of pleasurable experiences than we are in the way of say large houses and so the price of the lobster roll went up not because lobsters became more expensive and not even because the price of extracting the lobster meat from the lobster in terms of labor became more expensive but just because in order to be able to balance supply and demand, you needed the price to go up. And I think a large chunk of inflation is just that kind of recalibration of supply and demand to reflect the new priorities that we have. Um, you see this a lot in the hospitality sector, restaurants, hotels, they've, they've raised their prices a lot. Demand for them is still high because that's just a new thing. We have more demand for such things than we did pre-pandemic um more you know so that so i feel like that is a sort of one and done temporary phenomenon in many ways you know that you you just have this recalibrated system you have a bunch of like onshoring and redundancies that you didn't have before if you're importing everything in an incredibly efficient supply chain from china that's cheap that's low price if you have to build in more redundancy build more stuff domestically, that's more expensive, that's going to cost more. But once you've moved, once you've finished that um, rebuilding, uh, at that point, you don't have embedded inflation anymore, because you're, you just have a new sort of dynamic equilibrium. Um, when the Fed came out early in the inflationary trajectory and said, we think inflation is temporary. In that sense, I think they were right. I just think that when they came out and said temporary, people thought it meant a couple of months. For me, temporary means much longer than that, probably five or six years. But we're already seeing inflation come down sharply from the the big spike in inflation is clearly over. And now we're on a long, slow downward trajectory. It's my, it's my general feeling because the changes that we've made in terms of reveal preferences, most of them have been made. There are still a few more to come. But the, the, the big inflationary spike is behind us. Do you think, uh, that, and you, you do write a bit about the Fed and the role that it uh, has changed. Do you think that at the time, we heard so often inflation is transitory. Inflation is transitory. That's the word we kept hearing. Do you think mm -hmm. that they might have served 
the, the economy and the public better by explaining transitory and that it could be a longer lens rather than a couple of months? Exactly, exactly. Um, if they've said inflation is transitory, it's going to take, you know, we, it's going to be around for a few years, but it will go away. Then suddenly when we had, you know, six months later, it was higher rather than lower. People wouldn't have been like, you were so wrong. Um, so yeah, they, they could have definitely done a better job of explaining what they meant by that. If indeed that is what they meant. I, I, you know, don't know exactly what they meant by transitory, but also the fact that it kept on rising, even as they kept on saying it was transitory did give them the cover they needed to do an incredibly aggressive series of rate hikes. We've had 500 basis points of rate hikes, which is huge. And, um, and what you can't really do is do 500 basis points of rate hikes at the same time as saying, this is nothing to worry about because that kind of degree of tightening clearly says this is something to worry about. Another item from the recent jobs reports, the workforce participation rate in the United States seems kind of stubbornly consistent at 62%. What do you make of that? What you're seeing there is a, is a lot of, um, changes in individuals, but not so much changes in the group as a whole. So there's a lot of people who, you know, just quit the workforce entirely during the pandemic. This is the YOLO thing again. You only live once. And if you're working in a bad job for a boss you hate, like, why would you do that? You're going to quit. You had a great resignation. A bunch of people realized they had actually enough money to, that they didn't need to work. So they stopped working. Um, a bunch of people, a bunch of young women, apparently, like especially entered the workforce because they're like, this is something I can and should, should do. And, you, and the female labor participation rate is actually is hitting new highs. Um, we're seeing a lot of changes. We're just not seeing it in the big aggregate statistics. Um, yeah, the long-term trend is very much in an aging society that the labor participation rate is going to slowly decline over time because you're going to have more and more older, retired people as a percentage of the population. Um, but as you say, the short-term trend is pretty flat. Um, what we, you know, it is clear that there is massive demand from employers for employees. Um, so they would love it if all of those prime age workers who are not um, employed right now would change their minds and decide to get a job instead. But that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. So if we're going to really achieve the economic potential of the country, then we're going to have to import workers. There's, there's no other way to do it. We're going to need much more immigration um, because the domestic American workforce is, is kind of maxed out. People don't want to work any more than they're working right now. Which leads right into the very divisive immigration debate. So yeah, I mean, immigration is going to become ever more divisive, right? Like we are entering this world of ever worsening climate change. Um, climate crises create migrants. Um, lots of, you know, they create wars, wars create migrants, they create, you know, water shortages, water shortages create migrants. Um, and migrants create political division, wherever you see a country with a lot of inward migration, you see a lot of uh, politicians making hay about that and, and getting elected on 
on this sort of anti-migrant platform of some description. Um, at the same time, though, they also cause economic growth and economic potential. And if we can find a way to really embrace increased migration and increased immigration, then that would be one of the great phoenixes to come out of the um, you know future decades because the it's it's trillions of dollars lying on the sidewalk waiting waiting to be picked up if you are a poor nigerian who immigrates to norway your the value of your labor goes up tenfold you know so and that's just it's it's so obvious that we should be doing that more and thinking about workforce participation uh, and also combining with another theme in your book which is that the COVID economy impacted generations differently. Saw this headline in Fortune last week. Half of boomers and late Gen Xers who took early retirement during the first COVID wave have fallen into poverty. So yeah, the, it's, it's, the poverty statistics are interesting. Um, poverty went down massively during COVID. It was the largest decline in poverty in US history. And inequality went down massively, partly for that reason. Um, globally, poverty is a slightly different story because globally they didn't have the same sort of fiscal and monetary policy that the United States was able to muster. But in the United States, there was there was very good news on, on the poverty front. The, as you say, the people who retired early during COVID, did that in that sort of YOLO um, mindset of, I have to, I'm facing a fork in the road. I can, I can stay in my job and continue to earn money, or I can quit my job and prioritize other things that I need to prioritize, that I want to prioritize in my life, you know, my family. Um, and obviously, if you don't have a job, you're not earning money, that means you're going to have less money. There isn't a great social safety net in the United States. It was very briefly for a couple of years during the pandemic. Um, we had the eviction moratorium. We had a whole bunch of stimulus checks. We had enhanced you know, child credits. We, we had a lot of things that like, helped people um, navigate a world without employ employer income and those things have basically gone away now and so at this point those people are really realizing oh yeah no this is um this is definitely a cash poor life that i've effectively chosen and i i dare say some of them are regretting it and maybe even some of them are finding difficulty we would like to re-enter the workforce and are finding difficulty doing so but we still basically have full employment right now so it's not that hard um yeah, I think of this in terms of revealed preferences. You know, there are people out there um, who, even when faced with severe shortages of money, have decided like this is the life I want rather than um, the you know the life of employment. The big asterisk that I will add to that, though, and this is very very important, is that when you're looking at boomers and, and older Gen X, um, COVID was a really, really nasty disease for millions of people. And long COVID is a really nasty disease for millions of people. And the there are a lot of people who would love to work and are just newly medically incapable of working because they have long COVID and the after effects of COVID. And 
they are being driven into poverty because they don't have that income. And that is a, a national tragedy. And that is definitely part of what you're talking about. Newsy bit. Are you surprised that this is a summer of strikes? Is it? Is it really? I mean... Well, there's certainly a lot being reported. The there's, there's Hollywood lot, strikes, the possible UPS strike. There's the yeah. writers, yeah, the UPS. There's, you know, we had, we had a couple in the media industry. I mean, there is this broad uh, recalibration of the relationship between labor and capital, right? This has happened in virtually every single industry. The, the workers have had found themselves with more power and employers have found themselves with less power. And that was especially strong in sort of 2021 and beginning of 2022. It's kind of weakening in a bit now, but the workers don't want to give up that power. The, meanwhile, the employers are saying, oh, you know, we want to regain as much of the upper hand as we possibly can. And that creates tensions and that creates strikes. So, yeah, like the, the workers are still very much in the kind of mindset, which is reasonable and uh, saying like, you need us and we are going to flex our muscles. And the employers are, are saying, no, we, we really need to retain the kind of margins that we're getting used to. And it's going to take a while to to work out, to shake out, and there will be strikes along the way. And yeah, this is part of how, as a society, we determine the new equilibrium, because we are in this very unknown um, sort of land right now. The, the rules, the old rules have been thrown away. We haven't really written the new rules yet. And so this is a great opportunity for organized labor to put together new rules about things like, you know, the, the big one of the big issues in the writer's strike is like, can you use AI to write things? And the writers are saying, no, like we're humans, employ us, don't employ AIs. And the, um, and the and capital, the owners are saying like, if AI is better and cheaper, why wouldn't they do that? So there's a bunch of negotiations happening about um, what the new sort of rules of the road and rules of the game are going to be. and when they become super fraught, then that ends up in strikes. But if you look not at the number of strikes, but the number of people on strike, it's not actually that high. You know, especially it, the, the big sort of days of organized labor are, are really behind us at this point. There are a few big unions left, but compared to a few decades ago, it's, they're, they're much smaller and they're much less powerful than they used to be still. Uh, what's interesting is that labor has found other ways of uh, um, showing its influence beyond organized labor, beyond unions, right? That if you, there's like one of the interesting things about the Great Resignation was that a whole bunch of bad employers or disliked employers just saw their employees leave. You know, they just voluntarily quit. That's a for, that's like a, a, in many ways a more powerful form of going on strike. Instead of saying like we will, uh, you know, we will threaten to leave, you, you just leave and or threaten to stop working, you just stop working, you just quit. And employers, you know, had to start really looking much more carefully, like, looking much harder to find workers. It used to be that they would be like, oh, we need, you, you can quit and. If you do, we'll find another one because there's a million people who would love this job. Suddenly there weren't any people who would love the job. And that was a real wake up call to employers. And that forced them in, in many ways, much more than unions did to make their work um, 
life for their employees much more pleasant. And if you look at if you look at surveys right now, the workforce in America has never been happier. People are really happy in their jobs compared to how they were pre-pandemic, and that's a great sign. Well, jumping more specifically into some of the things you cover in the book, the chapter on business acceleration, you'd make the point that for all individuals, time really slowed down, but for the business community on the economic level, time sped up. What were the lessons and possible, what's the, what are the phoenixes that might rise out of this observation? So the, the example I give in the book is Microsoft Teams, you know, a little bit like those banks we were just talking about. Microsoft was one of these big, lumbering, trillion-dollar corporations that moved very slowly, and they would try and develop software. And after seven or eight years, it would come out with some dreadful piece of software that everyone hated. Um, and then suddenly, all of its workforce suddenly had to start working from home, and there was no real way of coordinating them anymore. And Microsoft was in a bad place in in the beginning of the pandemic. Meanwhile you had these two much younger, much more nimble companies, Slack and Zoom, who were just hoovering up customers and were stock market darlings and were, everyone was like, you know, we need these technologies to do remote work. And Microsoft, with this remote workforce and its inability to get anything done, moved unbelievably quickly to develop this brand new piece of software called Microsoft Teams, which in very short order managed to obliterate both Slack and Zoom. They both, you know, if you look at their share prices or their profits or anything like that, Slack had to wind up getting sold. Zoom is, is you know, worth a tenth of what it was. Um, Another really good example is is Threads, which just came out. You know, again, like if you think of the great innovations that Mark Zuckerberg and um, Meta have managed to come up with over the years, there was the sort of pivot to mobile shortly after they went public around 2013, which took a while, and they they, they eventually managed to get there. Um, and then there was a couple of acquisitions, right, of Instagram and WhatsApp. But the idea of just being able to build something incredibly popular in the space of a few weeks, which is seemingly what they've managed to do with Threads, that wasn't something they were capable of doing before. It turns out these really big companies can move really fast and can be really nimble, and no one really expected that. We are at the halfway point in our conversation with Felix Salmon. He is chief financial correspondent at Axios and has a new book out called The Phoenix Economy, Work, Life, and Money in the New Not Normal. The chapter on personal investing had the uh, interesting name of From Ladders to Trampolines. And this is a, a chapter that really might help explain for people in my generation some of the buzz and excitement around things like cryptocurrency and NFTs. So yeah, that was a phrase that I stole from Kevin Roos at the New York Times. Um, and basically, those I'm, I'm Gen X. And as I explained in the chapter, Gen X is the generation of passive investing. We don't try and put our money in things that are going to go up 100 times. We just put our money in index funds and forget about it. Um, you know, don't, don't search for the needle in the haystack, just buy the haystack. As, as Jack Vogel of Vanguard put it. Um, 
boomers were a little bit different because they grew up before the age of passive investing and so they would you know try and find good stocks to own probably over the long term again yeah that's that sort of warren buffett idea of like try and pick great companies with defensible moats and invest in them and just keep on buying them and you'll do great um or just buy berkshire hathaway for that matter and then all of that kind of sort of came to an end with the millennial generation because they didn't have money to invest. You know, they, they had negative net worth a lot of the time because they had all of these student loans. Um, they entered the workforce after the financial crisis of 2008 to nine. And so it was hard for them to find high paying jobs, rents were high, times were hard and interest rates were at zero. So this, you know, glorious eighth wonder of the world of compound interest turned out to be unavailable to them. Um, you can earn interest on your money. And so when the pandemic comes along and everyone's kind of stuck at home with a bunch of excess money, which they got in terms of like these stimulus checks, suddenly they're like, I don't want to try and make a sensible investment that's going to pay off in 40 years. That's not that doesn't make any sense for how I'm living and what my life does. What I want is not to slowly climb the ladder. What I want is to jump on that trampoline and immediately get rich quick. And not only did people want that, but they could look around and see it happening all around them. I personally know people that this happened to, and a lot of other people do too. You know, the stories of people buying some random crypto coin and then becoming multimillionaires and calling in rich to their jobs and going off to live on an island somewhere like this actually happened um so it was realistic you know you could get into crypto you could get into meme stocks you could get into nfts and it was fun and it was social and it was extremely online and it was the only game in town and we were all stuck at home with nothing else to do and so that just became a whole new paradigm for investing one where you embraced risk instead of trying to avoid it where you actually thought that losing money was you know fun in the way that losing a video game can be fun and then you pick yourself up and go back and it was part of a much bigger sort of increased risk appetite that we saw especially Especially among young men across the board and that you know it turned into craziness in meme stocks it turned into a much higher death rate among young men you know uh, if you look at men between 18 and 25 they died at an astonishingly high rate during during COVID and not because they were dying of COVID itself right it was because they were dying in car accidents or you know gun deaths or opioid overdoses or something like that there was just a lot more risk taking in general and risk-taking can be extremely harmful, but it can also create just astonishing amounts of economic activity and, and wealth creation and capital formation. So, yeah, there, there are definitely two sides to this coin, but I feel that at this point, the dream of using the market in one way or another to get rich quick um, is, is going to be with us for a while, and the future opportunities to do that are going to arise and people are going to jump on them in much the same way that they did in 2021. I liked your uh, conclusion on this, uh, which was those who would judge the young just need to remember that they are old and that the young have never listened to the old and it's worked out okay. It really has, you know, like you know, even the boomers were young ones, I think, so I'm told. I, I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and the, the other interesting thing about boomers, and, and, and it plays into this, you made the point that the current generational wealth is 70% in the boomers. And as boomers begin to transfer that to younger generations, they will have the COVID lessons. So who, who knows what their, their aspect or in, uh, will be on investing? Right, and and I remember um, talking to a very rich acquaintance of mine, who, um, for reasons that completely escape me, uh, wound up effectively giving his grandson some large chunk of money to invest. Um, you know, it was like six figures, something like that. And the grandson immediately goes and blows it all on meme stocks and cryptocurrencies and it all kind of goes to zero. And the boomer grandfather was like, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of glad that he's learned his lesson that way. But I, I don't think he did. You know, I, I feel like that's a very boomerish idea that if you lose money, that's like a bad, painful outcome and you won't want to experience that again. Whereas I feel like for a lot of people who entered these markets with their eyes wide open, which is almost everyone, you know, you don't get into crypto because you think it's safe. Um, they were like, yeah, I'm gonna take a high risk bet and I'll probably lose my money, but that's the game. And there's a small chance I'll be, you know, I'll end up making a thousand times what I put in and I'm, I'm willing to take that that I, you know, I'm I'm playing that lottery, and as you know, just looking around, the lottery is incredibly popular. This is a really big topic with a lot of ways we could go, but the geographic implications of workspace transformation. Let's start on the macro level. The impact on cities of the voluntary displacement of especially white collar workers. So I live in New York, and there was a huge out migration of boomers and older Gen Xers who had achieved a level of professional safety, could work from home, didn't want to be stuck in New York City during the pandemic, found a nice place in the suburbs of the countryside somewhere, and elicited a series of headlines about how New York was you know, dead forever, which were always ludicrous. Um, and the idea behind those headlines was always very similar, which was the idea that the only reason that a city like New York thrives is because no one likes density, but they have to go in for professional reasons to earn money and they want to earn money. So they wind up living lives they don't really like in a city that is noisy and crowded. And then the minute they get the opportunity to leave, they will. But that's not actually how cities work. People love cities. I love cities. Um, and what we've seen now, the things are beginning to shake out, is a massive influx of 20-somethings into cities like New York, many of whom do not need to be there for professional reasons, right? Many of these people who are you know, on TikTok, you know, showing their restaurant hopping, have all remote jobs from companies that you know probably don't have, even have an office in New York. But people are moving to these cities because they want to live in these cities. Cities have become more vibrant, more exciting. They're where people want to come to meet people. To like people have um, weirdly, I think the the experience of being isolated from each other and not being able to touch each other for so long has reinforced in all of us the 
pleasures of being able to be around people, to be together with people, and to enjoy that kind of density. And so if you look at what's happening to younger people, like especially before they, you know, start families, they're like really flocking to cities in a way that they hadn't pre-pandemic. And so you're seeing a big sort of rotation of the older people moving out, the younger people moving in, and people who really want to be there moving in, and the people who don't want to be, be there moving out, which makes the cities much happier places, much more alive places. Um, and so that's being seen not only in New York, but that's being seen in a bunch of second-tier cities too. You know, you're seeing it in Chicago, Boise, Austin, Miami, um, you know, um, uh, you know, all places in Georgia, Texas, Arizona, across the country. So that is profound, right? The the long term trend of urbanization that we see across the planet that is happening in Africa, that is happening in China, that is happening, you know, is also happening in in the United States, and that has not been disrupted in any way. Um, the type of living that we do in these cities and indeed the type of living that we do out in the suburbs and the exurbs that is changing um we have lost the love of great big spaces and we prefer smaller more intimate places with privacy we don't want big cathedral ceilings anymore we want a door that we can close and that we can have our zoom calls without being able without other people hearing us and without us hearing other people um so architecturally there are very interesting implications uh to to the way that residences are being designed but in terms of the long-term trajectory and this is centuries old of like virtually every economy in the world becoming increasingly reliant on the output of cities that has only really as far as, far as i can tell uh that hasn't changed at all uh, before we leave cities, uh, one of the other aspects, not personal living, but the, all those commercial real estate leases that are going to be coming increasingly uh, to term over the next few years and uh, the impact of that on the economy and what it means for the cities themselves with the change in income. Really great question. So a bunch of things are happening there. One is that the rents are going to come down, as you say, the leases are going to come due the companies that used to be willing and able to pay top dollar for those leases are not going to want nearly as much space uh, they're going to want a little space but they're going to really downsize and so then that's going to free up a bunch of other space and there aren't so many companies being who are willing to pay top dollar for those spaces so the value of those spaces is going to come down rent commercial rents are going to come down that I think net net is a good thing. It means that smaller companies and mid-sized companies who were never able to afford the, that top dollar are now going to find much more opportunity to be able to move into the sort of dense central business districts that they had previously been priced out of. So we're going to see a much greater variety of companies in downtowns, and that's great. We're going to see density come back into the offices, not because um, everyone is is going to go back to the office but just because we're going to have many more companies you know in any given office building um with the lower rents are going to mean lower tax revenues probably for cities but if you look at commercial 
tax, you know, commercial office tax as a percentage of um, municipal income, it's really low. Even in a city like New York, um, the New York Controller just put out a report saying, like, this is within the rounding errors, basically, that we that we deal with in our budgets. This is not anything really big to worry about. And in terms of the owners of these buildings, you know, the, the big landlords who own commercial office buildings, they will lose money, right? Their, the, their investments will go down in value, but they're precisely the people who can afford to lose money. So, you know, many, there will be a bunch of um, bankruptcies, right? They, the, a bunch of companies who own office buildings will declare bankruptcy and then the office building will wind up being owned by someone else, one of the creditors, you know? But like, as far as the tenants of that comp- of that building are concerned, it doesn't matter who owns the building. It doesn't matter what the building is worth. What matters is like, is it a good building? Do I want to go to work there? What's the location like? You know, these kind of things. Um, and that, and the great thing about commercial real estate is it doesn't change. You know, like you can, the, it can go through a series of seventeen owners, all of whom go bankrupt, but the building itself is is still going strong. You know, they're bricks and mortar; they stand there. So we don't need to worry about the buildings, the physical buildings. All we need to worry about is the the owners of the buildings, and frankly, they they can afford to lose some money. So I I I am relatively sanguine about that. Um, obviously. You also have the opportunity here, in some cases, not all, to do commercial to residential conversions, and that's also great. You know that we we have this um, revealed demand. If you look at what rents are in almost any city you care to point to, um, rents are very very high, and so um, there's a lot of demand to live in these cities. And there's a lot of people who are very happy to live in a dense downtown area who don't necessarily need to own a car or drive one very often and who would love to be able to live in a skyscraper in, in an apartment and be and a lot of these buildings do lend themselves to residential conversions and then you just get a much healthier mix of um, commercial and residential in any given neighborhood so that's also a positive so I, i'm i'm pretty upbeat about that whole situation. Turning from cities to the world, in the post-global world, you write, globalism lies in ashes killed by much more than COVID, although COVID was part of the fatal cocktail. In that chapter, you give a lot of downsides, such as uh, China's increased authoritarianism, Hong Kong's lack of of, uh, autonomy uh, diminishing, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the UK's divorce from the EU, coups happening around the country and increased nationalism, which and turns into more friction between countries. So where's the phoenix in all of that? It's a good question. And, and this, you know, it's broadly an optimistic book, um, but I'm not going to try and, you know, squeeze a bunch of phoenixes out of, out of things which are clearly bad. And, and yeah, I, I liked the more global world, like, you know, uh, it, a lot of people didn't, um, but I, I thought it really helped in terms of reducing poverty and increasing opportunity around the planet. Like it was, it was really good. And we are now leaving countries much more to their own devices. And um, while that does build resilience and it does build local economies and those local economies can be very successful, um, you do lose a lot of economies of scale and a lot of natural cooperation. And 
you know, cooperation, if you look back to that 70 year period after the Second World War, is great. You know, it's great for preventing wars. You know, we, we now have a major war still going on in Ukraine, which is just unbelievably deadly and terrifying. Um, there is a constant threat of another major war over Taiwan. And we don't have the kind of economic ties anymore that we used that we used to have where everyone's like, well, we can't possibly go to war with each other because our economies are too intertwined. Um, you know, they exist to some degree, but they're, they're weakening very rapidly. So we are going to see a more regional world. We are going to see a more local world. I think this is good for the probably maybe good for the United States, which is, you know, a continent sized economy with complete freedom of labor and movement and freedoms across the country. But even within the United States, we're seeing sort of a balkanization and we're seeing increasing differences between the states. We're seeing, um, you know, people moving out to states where they don't have abortion rights and that kind of thing. So like it's um, we're seeing a bunch of barriers going up and, and the, you know, early part of the book talks about how we created barriers and how barriers are very natural in the time of plague and barriers go up much more quickly than they go down. And it's going to take a long time for those barriers between countries and barriers within countries and barriers within between um, communities to come down. Um, that will help strengthen the communities to some extent. But yeah, no, I would say on that front, the um, the global downside is, is bigger than the upside. We have about eight minutes left. And because this is C-SPAN, I do want to get to the thinking you were doing around money. Because earlier in our conversation, you referenced that people's conception of money changed. And in this particular chapter, you talk about the our government particularly, but other governments as well, beginning to think of money as a social construct rather than objective reality, a tool of both foreign and domestic policy. What's the implications of this? It's super profound, right? People don't believe in this made up thing called money as much as they used to. And one of the reasons is that most of us woke up in the morning and found $1,400 in our bank account and did that more than once. We're like, whoa, this is just magic beans that have appeared out of nowhere. And we realized just how much money was a, something that governments control rather than like an objective fact of the world. Um, more, Much more profoundly than that, we also saw during the pandemic um, extreme sanctions being levied on Afghanistan when it got taken over by the Taliban and on Russia when it invaded Ukraine to the point at which those countries' foreign reserves, which was like actual money that they were holding for their own you know, national wealth, just basically evaporated. They had no access to that money anymore. That money was on deposit at the New York Fed and the New York Fed basically just turned around and said, you can't have it anymore. And and so in that sense, money was used very, very aggressively as a tool of foreign policy. Um, we cut off Russia from SWIFT, which is the global banking system, global banking messaging system. And, you know, and that was before we did it, everyone talked about that being the nuclear option, you know, because money is so important. Um, we were like, nope, we can do that. We can just take that whole country and isolate it in terms of payments. So what we've realized is that money is is a very political thing and the dollar is a very political thing. Um, 
Henry Farrell has a new book coming out about this, which is fantastic. And you, uh, and you have, and, and trying to understand what it means to be worth something, what it means for money to have intrinsic value in a world where it's just governed by governments. Um, what it, you know, I, I've been writing a lot about this proposal that the world's governments print two trillion SDRs, which are these, you know, weird things that the IMF invented to help um fight climate change and fight poverty globally and all of this is just part and parcel of how fiat currencies work and how fiat currencies have always worked but governments have historically been very shy to really um, use their power to to its full extent and now i think they're much less shy and that's going to have a profound effect on how people and how governments and how um, legislatures and executives think about um, money and the ability to, to use it to further whatever ends they have. Uh, five minutes and I want to get income inequality on the table because you, you really described a barbell, especially in the United States, where some of the poor uh, fellow citizens actually did better during the pandemic. But uh, both here and globally, billionaires were the biggest winners. What caused that income inequality to be so disparate? So income inequality was massive pre-pandemic and it declined broadly during the um, pandemic. You know, the billionaires got richer, but the on a percentage level, the poor got richer even faster than the billionaires. Obviously, they didn't see their individual wealth go up by billions of dollars like the billions billionaires did. But you saw um, inequality within countries generally going down and inequality in the rich world generally going down. The poor world was a different story because the poor world didn't have the ability to use both, use massive amounts of fiscal and monetary policy to just flood the country with money and wealth and economic stimulus. So in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, the, the story is very different. And, and one of the reasons why people are talking about issuing all of these SDRs. Um, in the rich world with the billionaires, the billionaires just got rich because there was just so much more money. You know, if you massively increase the amount of money in the world um, through, you know, through, through fiscal stimulus and through monetary policy, then given the way that the financial plumbing of the, of the um, financial architecture works, like a whole bunch of that money is going to find its way into the pockets of billionaires. In fact, and those pockets, by the way, are going to be physically held in places like Silicon Valley Bank. And then when all that money flows into Silicon Valley Bank, this is you know one of the wonderful, weird, unexpected consequences of the pandemic, um, that actually causes a banking crisis. It was, it, that, that was the banking crisis of banks having too much money. If all of this money caught, you know, it, there's a bunch of ironies and um, you know, paradoxes here. But yeah, the, the inequality situation broadly is good it is it it is not looking forwards uh i'm not that optimistic about it continuing to decline i think inequality will probably start ticking back up again because the big structural forces that caused inequality to go up over the past you know since about 1980 are still largely in place but i do think as we were talking about like the way that labor has much more power power over capital than it used to that that is going to help things still be better than they were pre-pandemic for the, for the foreseeable future. Well, as we close out here, 
this is, as you said, generally an optimistic book, the whole concept of Phoenix. So, but I, I was struck by you uh, were looking particularly to the kind of creativity that might still be on the horizon based on the extra time that people had on their hands. Will you finish with some thoughts on where you think that might go in the next couple of years? Yeah, we're, we're just an incredibly inventive species, right? And as I say, we're happier now than we ever have been at work. A lot of us quit our jobs. Famously, you know, Shakespeare wrote Macbeth and King Lear during uh, Plague. It, being, the, the, the pandemic gave us this YOLO uh, theme that is throughout the economy and throughout the book. And people are really embracing their dreams and following their dreams. And a lot of those dreams are creative. And creativity creates not just art, but it creates commerce and it creates companies and it creates wealth. And I think that's one of the big reasons why I'm so optimistic is that I just see, you know, opportunity of creativity more broadly distributed than it's ever been. People anywhere in the world, as long as they have, you know, an internet connection basically, can really change the planet in the way that they hadn't been able to before. So I think we, we are only at the beginning of seeing the huge opportunities that um, were engendered by us being forced to just take another look at our lives and say like, what, how do I actually want to live this? One of the data points on that is the increasing number of small business licenses that are being sought. Massive, like entrepreneurship is through the roof. Even when you know restaurants were basically banned in New York City and indoor dining was banned, we saw more new restaurants being opened than in pre-pandemic times. Yeah, people are really wanting to go out and start new things. Well, that's a very optimistic uh, note to end on in a book that's titled (laughs) The Phoenix Economy. Thank you so much. Uh, Let me give the full title for people who are interested. The Phoenix Economy, Work, Life, and Money in the New, Not Normal. Felix Salmon is the author, and you can read him regularly as well in Axios. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Thank you, it was a great, great pleasure. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Remember, if you subscribe to this podcast, you'll never miss an episode. And I'd really like to hear from you about our interviews. You can email me at podcasts, that's podcast with an S, at c-span.org. Your feedback is welcome.